0: Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your Spirit will lead us into truth, fill our hearts with your love, that we may be more like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing the last lesson in the quarterly, 1st uh, and 2nd Peter, Feed My Sheep, the title Major Themes in 1st and 2nd Peter, and the memory text is from 1st Peter 2.24, I'm going to read it from the version that the quarterly selected, which is the New Revised Standard Version, and then I'm going to read it immediately after from the remedy, and I want you all to to compare and ask, do you hear it the same way? If you hear it differently, what's different? Do you think there's any value in the difference and so forth? So here's uh, from the New Revised Standard Version, 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might, might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And this is from the remedy. He took upon himself our sinfulness, our terminal condition, and in his own person carried it upon the cross so that we could be free from sin and live the right way, loving God and others more than self. You have been healed by the remedy procured by his painful ordeal. Do you hear those the same? He bore our sins in his body. He bore our sinfulness. Do you hear those the same? I do now. You do now. Historically, would you have heard those the same? No. What's the difference between sins and sinfulness in your mind when you hear those? Acts, and conditions. Uh, acts deeds versus Dishes. a condition, a state of being. No. Yes. Does the understanding on how you read the verse, sins versus sinfulness, have an impact on how you understand the judgment? If we are always thinking sins, deeds, bad behaviors, does that impact what we understand the judgment to be? If we understand sin to be the state of being that is out of harmony with God, that he's trying to heal and restore in us a new heart and right spirit, then we do we understand the judgment to be something else. Well, let's talk about the judgment today because that's in our lesson. Is there one judgment, two judgments, three judgments, or more? How many judgments? About three billion. About three mil- billion? Okay. Uh, I'm talking about distinct different types of judgments, not the, the, the billions of people doing it. That's a good point. Um, for instance, is there an investigative judgment, a judgment before the second coming? How many think there, there is? Anybody think there's a judgment before Christ appears again? Yes. Yes. Okay. So if so, the question then is, who is being judged and who is doing the judging? Is this a judicial process with records being reviewed and evidence being entered and the defense attorneys pleading and arguing uh, for exoneration? In this judgment before Christ comes, who's determining who's saved and who's lost? Is it the, is it the rule and the verdict of the judge that makes, makes the uh, outcome so? Whose judgment, now look at this, this is a very important question. In this judgment before Christ comes, whose judgment, in other words, the faculty of discernment, whose executive decision-making is being exercised and utilized to determine the judgment. Is it God's executive decision-making? Is it some other intelligent being's executive decision-making happening in the investigative judgment? Is God judging people on earth, or is this judgment by the people on earth whether they can trust God or not? Is there a judgment during the thousand years? Yeah. Who's doing the judging and who's being judged? <clears throat> are the righteous judging the lives of the wicked and the fallen angels and determining how much punishment they get before they're, they're ultimately executed? Yeah. I mean, there are passages people use to teach this. The New Testament teaches, don't you know that you will judge saints and angels? Bible teaches that. Is that what's happening? We're going to sit and, and uh, all those who are in Sodom and Gomorrah, they get 30 seconds off uh, in the fire because they've already been burned once. <laughs> Pretty good. I mean, is that what's happening? Are the righteous judging whether God was right in who is actually in heaven and who's not? Is there a judgment after the thousand years? Some might call that the great white throne judgment. Is there a judgment after the is there a judgment before the... comes, judgment during the thousand, judgment after the thousand years? And if so, who's being judged and who's doing the judging? Is the judgment at the end of the thousand years a judicial process? Records are going to be reviewed and evidence is going to be entered and arguments are going to be made for and against. And the defense attorney will be there and a prosecuting attorney will be there. Is this how we see the Great White Throne judgment? Or is it the accurate diagnosis and revelation of the actual condition of the hearts and minds of all people. Well, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has taught the idea of a judgment that occurs before the second coming of Christ from its inception. This doctrine has its root in the great awakening of the 19th century with the Baptist preacher William Miller who began teaching an interpretation, a certain interpretation of prophecy, Daniel 8.14, 2300 days slash years until the sanctuary will be cleansed. And he began preaching that the cleansing of the sanctuary is the second coming of Christ and he predicted a date and remember, this is the Adventist Church doesn't exist yet. The Adventist Church doesn't exist till 1860s. This is in the 1820s and 1830s. So this this is not Seventh Day Adventist now. Um, but he's been preaching that the second coming of Christ is going to occur in October 22, 1844, and this caused a great revival across North America and, and other parts of the world. And as you know, Christ didn't return, and there was a great disappointment. And many people went back and began examining what went wrong. Did we have our? Did, did, was the prophecy wrong? Um, And then they discovered, well, you know what? Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that the earth is the sanctuary to be cleansed. And they started looking for another sanctuary. Sadly, in this reevaluation process, many people who reevaluated this did so through the lens of human law. What's the difference between human law and God's law? God creates space, time, energy, matter, life. His laws are the laws upon which reality are built. You and I, we can't make reality, so what do we do? We make up rules, and then if you don't obey our rules, we will have to inflict punishment to punish you for rule-breaking. Christianity came to view. God runs his universe like this, and so some... Bible students began to interpret the interpretation of the investigative judgment through the lens of this type of law and began teaching a, what I call a heavenly legalism, that there are record books in heaven that are keeping track of all the bad deeds you've done. And during the investigative judgment, those records are open and and uh, the good deeds are weighed and the bad deeds and then the legal price that are paid by Jesus and who's accept his payment will get legal pardon and and, and records of, of sin are going to be erased out of historical records and and all this type of process is happening in heaven. And it's all based on a false understanding of God's law. So, in Scripture, there are actually several texts besides Daniel 8.14 that describe the exact same event as Daniel 8.14. Daniel 8.14, 2300 days slash years until the sanctuary be cleansed. All we learn in Daniel 8.14 is a prophetic time period. It's all that we're told. We're not really told more than that, other than the, the symbolic language of sanctuary and cleansing. Or, and sometimes the language there, instead of cleansed, is set right. The sanctuary would be set right, or the sanctuary would be put right, which is the actual Hebrew meaning, to put it right or set it right. What's another word, by the way, for putting something right or setting something right? Justify. Justify. So you could say 2,300 years of the sanctuary would be set right, put right, or justified. Justification. Well, let me ask you, in this, in this conflict between good and evil, what is it that is supposed to be justified? Or should I say, who is it? You but who's being justified? Is God being justified? <laughs> is a building in heaven being justified? Or is the hearts and minds of sinners being justified? Oh, interesting. Well, the other texts that speak of the same event, this is out of a book, and this is how the, the early Adventists saw this. This is out of a book called Faith I Live By, page 207. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary, brought to view in Daniel 8.14, the coming of the son of man to the ancient of days presented in Daniel seven thirteen, and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, are descriptions of the same event. So early Adventists saw three texts, and then it goes on to actually fourth text, the, the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 also described the same. So four texts that Adventists used to think and used to teach describe the same event. Well, let's look at Daniel 7, see if we get more insight in what's being described. Daniel 7, this is out of the NIV, um, verses 9, 10, 13, and 14. And think what's being described here. What's happening? As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow, his, hair was, his head was white like wool. The throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. Pause right there. Are these wicked people? Are these, are these the rebellious, the lost? Are these the saved, the righteous? or the angels anyway. And where what are they standing in? What are they being bathed in? Rivers of fire. Just get your mind around that. It might come up later. The court was seated, the court was seated, and the books were opened. historically those who have a human law lens who believe God makes up rules and then if you break his rules he's going to have a judiciary inquiry and if you don't get legal accounting for every bad thing you've done then he'll be forced to punish you. Those who have that view in this passage they use this passage to see a legal process because the court was set and books were open these are record books of your bad deeds that they read into it it doesn't actually say that and there's an investigation happening and then there's punishments that are going to be allocated to each person you know, did, you, did it say anything about that in the text? That's all read in by people who have a legal, human legal model. If we take a more straightforward approach and we ask, ask what's actually being described? What's, what's, what's happening in the text? What do you hear happening in that text I just read? Christ's throne. Christ's throne. So what's happening to Christ in this text? He's been coronating. Oh, it's a coronation. So when you hear the word court, We can have a room like this. This is a courtroom. It's a legal courtroom. And this is often what the legally minded people think. But is there another type of court? Is there a royal court? Hmm. And the ancient of days took his throne, not his judgment seat, his throne. And his son comes and all begin to worship and adore him. And notice This is a coronation. He is coronated to be the ruler. This isn't a judicial process. This is an acknowledgement. Now, if you understand how rulers rule, true rulers rule by the assent and agreement of the people. Now, God has the power to authoritatively enforce rulership. But if he does that, what happens in the hearts and minds of his subjects? Do we love him more? Do we trust him more? Can you get love and trust by threats and coercion? No. Zechariah. Chapter four. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the spirit works, says the Lord. The spirit is the spirit of? Am I going too fast? I'm trying to lead you through a thought process. I don't want to just tell you the answer. I'm trying to help you put the pieces together so you can see how the puzzle fits. You can't get love and trust by threatening to kill people who don't love you. And it says in the text, in the text, it said, "All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him." So where is the transforming? Where is the the change happening here in this in this event? Daniel eight fourteen, and we're in Daniel seven, same event. Something's happening in the hearts and minds of people on earth. Their attitude about Jesus is changing. Their understanding of Jesus is changing. Their value and adoration of Jesus is changing. He is being coronated. He is being elevated in the hearts and minds of people on earth. This is what's happening. He's being like vindicated in, in their hearts. I love this. Being vindicated. Think about the God, the Jesus, that the world has seen coming out of the Dark Ages. The Jesus that with red crosses and swords go on the Crusades to murder that burn people at the stake who don't worship in the right way, who weren't baptized in the right way. The mercilessness, the harshness, the cruelty, the arbitrariness that happened of the God of the Dark Ages named, the people named Jesus. Why do you think it was called the Dark Ages? Isaiah, darkness covers the people, gross darkness the people. Darkness about what? Darkness about God. And so there's a prophecy 2,300 years, and then the sanctuary be cleansed. And what's happening in the sanctuary? People come, Christ is being elevated, Christ is being adored, Christ is being worshiped. We're coming in to see him for who he really is. When do you think that will happen in human history? Won't it happen right before Christ returns that people will come to see those who are saved anyway, who he really is? Well, it says in scripture, when he comes, we shall see him face to face for we shall be like him. Something is changing. In our thinking about him, when we have the imposed human law model, we take these truths and we corrupt them and we actually teach investigative judgment constructs that obstruct our view of God. We actually teach a God who has a legal process happening. Let's see if we can go on some more. Uh, There's some references in here some people criticize because they they say the word court in the Hebrew text is the Hebrew word D-I-Y-N. You can say that, however Hebrew is pronounced. And they say that refers to a judicial process. If you actually look at the uh, theological word book of the Old Testament published by Moody Press, it tells you that that word actually means the entire authority of a government. It's not just judicial authority. It's all authority, meaning the authority to crown and to rule. So it's more than just a judicial process. So once we recognize that the royal court has been seated for the coronation of Christ, we can then read further down in Daniel 7 and get a little further insight into what's happening. Now, I'm going to read you this. This is Daniel 7, 21 and 22. It's coming out of the NIV, and then I will read it from the King James. See if you hear them the same. Here's the NIV. And remember, this, this gives you insight into how translations work. When translators translate, I think essentially most Bible translations are done with good integrity and honesty and good intent, and there's no maliciousness done. However, people have biases. They have beliefs that they have before they even go to the text. One of the beliefs many have is that God's law works like human law. And so they, they interpret in certain ways. So you can hear my, my throat with the, maybe a little allergy today. <clears throat> if I say I've got a frog in my throat and there's a translator translating that into another language, are they going to say I have phlegm, I have a lump, or I have an amphibian in my throat? I mean, they've got to choose in the translation, don't they? Or something else. Okay. So translations take and try to get the meaning that was intended. Here's the Here's the NIV. As I watched this horn, the horn, if you know the context of Daniel, is the enemy of God's people and he's fighting against God's people. This horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And this is used by those who have that judicial model. See, there's a judgment in heaven. And and the the little horn power is accusing them of all the bad things. And Satan is bringing up all the sins they've done. Oh, David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. And God stands up and says, yes, but he's claimed the blood of my son. And therefore, I pronounce judgment in his favor. That's how it's taught. Have you heard it taught that way? It's not right, but that's how it's taught. Here's how it says out of the... King James. See if if you hear it the same or do you hear something different? Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came the saints possessed the kingdom. Do you hear judgment pronounced in favor of? As the same meaning as judgment was given to the saints. Does that mean the same thing to you all? The translation in the Hebrew word there pronounced actually means, if you look it up in the lexicons and so forth, it means to give or to impart So you could say judgment was imparted to the saints. Now, if judgment is imparted to the saints, do you hear this is a legal pronouncement or do you hear something else now? Does the word judgment mean only judicial findings by a magistrate? Or does the word judgment mean an ability that you possess? In your judgment. And if judgment is being imparted to the saints or given to the saints, what's being described? Well, it's in the context of a war. The little horn power is warring against the saints, and he's winning the war. He's defeating them until an event, until judgment is imparted to the saints. And when judgment is imparted to the saints, the little horn power loses his war, and they possess the kingdom. Well, what kind of war is this? 2 Corinthians ten three through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage wars. The world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now notice, we're in a war. That's what the scripture is saying. What kind of war? Our divine weapons have the power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a war over arguments and pretensions and knowledge and thoughts, where's the battlefield? And what is, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, what's the central issue that we are being fought over? The knowledge of God. And our divine weapons demolish things that go against the knowledge of God. And so there's a little horn power who's waging war, and he's winning until an event happens. Judgment is imparted to the saints. What do you think that means? in the context of this war over the knowledge of God. Doesn't it mean that until enough truth is recovered, enough knowledge, enough accuracy about God, that we can make a right discernment? We can go, oh, God isn't like this. God is like this. What's being cleansed in that process? Is there a temple being cleansed in this process? Well, Paul makes it even more tightly connected for us. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Now notice this concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus. We're talking about the judgment that happens right before the coming of our Lord Jesus. So we're contextually right on here. This is what's going to happen right before Jesus comes. Uh, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. It's another way of describing that little horn power. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that now get this, he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now this little power this little man of sin who's going to war. So Christ comes. Christ achieves victory. He, 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 he finishes his goal. He rises again. He rises into heaven to see his father. He's up there as our ministering high priest in heaven, advocating for our healing and working to restore us. But there's, a, there's, a, there's an enemy on earth that's working against him. <clears throat> and what's he doing? Is that little enemy, this man of sin, does he ride up into heaven and knock Jesus off his throne up there and begin reigning in heaven? Is that what he's doing? Of course not where's the temple that this little man of sin sets himself up in in the hearts and minds of people how could he do that by getting us to have a conception of god that is so corrupt and distorted that we actually end up worshiping a caricature of satan but call it jesus this is what's happening this is the dark ages do you understand? I think when we when we move away from Christianity and you see people in other religions strap bombs on themselves and go and blow up buildings and fly planes in the buildings in the name of your God and their God, you actually see that's not God, that's evil, that's that's the enemy. You see it very clearly, don't you? How about when a Christian goes to an abortion clinic and shoots an abortion doctor? Do you see the same distorted God there? Oh no, that's righteousness now, that's justice, that's justice, that's a murderer, we got to kill him. Or is it the same distorted God? Paul's describing the exact same events here in Thessalonians as is described in Daniel, the man of lawlessness setting himself up in God's temple so that we worship this deity that's not really a deity. Therefore, there needs to be a cleansing of the temple as described in the Bible. And so Daniel's told in vision that there would be an evil power a little horn power. An evil power would arise. And he would war against the saints. He would distort ideas about God. He would be defeating the saints until a day comes that judgment or discernment is imparted to the saints, and then they can possess the kingdom. And that time when this message, this, this enough truth is recovered that we can reject the lies would be 2,300 years down the road before the truth to reject these distortions about God is recovered. And to confirm what I'm saying is the real perspective Malachi, remember Malachi chapter 3 describes the same event as Daniel 8:14. Here's what Malachi says. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Here we are, talking about him coming to his temple again. Same thing. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So in this time, when 2,300 years has come and the sanctuary is going to be cleansed, what's being cleansed? According to Malachi, same, same event? The Levites. And who are the Levites in Bible prophecy? We're studying Peter. Peter says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and you are a royal priesthood. You, believers in Jesus Christ, are the priesthood who are being cleansed at this time in earth's history, from the distortions and distrust of God so that we see God as Jesus revealed him to be so that he is high and lifted up and we worship and adore him for who he is and we become like him so we can see him face to face. This is the cleansing of the sanctuary. All this other thing that's corrupted the Adventist church with legal stuff happening in heaven, it's a lie and it cheats people out of the transforming power that is to be theirs at this time in earth's history. Now some people have difficulty with this because of Bible text. So, some people will accuse me of cherry picking and making. It. So, I'm not going to cherry pick. I'm going to read you some hard passages, and we're going to understand them. So, some people have a hard time because of passages like this. First is Ezekiel twenty thirty six. As I judged your fathers in the desert land of Egypt, so I will judge you, declares the Lord. Or Romans fourteen ten. You then, why do you judge your brother, or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Or 2 Corinthians 5:10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and each one may receive that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Or 1 Peter 1:17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear or Revelation twenty twelve, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to that which was done and recorded in the books. What's the first question I'm going to ask you? <laughs> what Thank you. What law lens do you look through when you hear this? Do these immediately drag you back to your human law constructs and you're immediately thinking of human uh, ways of governing and you're projecting that back on how you understand these texts? That's how they're traditionally taught. But, you know, there's another understanding when you're under design law. We will all stand in the examining room of Christ. The, the judgment seat before the... The examining room. What, what happens in an examining room? Who, who actually looks closer to find what's wrong with you? The magistrate or the doctor? <laughs> the doctor. They're both examining. They're both looking for defects. They're both going to make a judgment. We just call one a diagnosis. But it's a judgment. So here is a judgment example from scripture. You tell me, is this a judicial magistrate thing or is this a diagnosis of state of being? Hosea 4.17. God speaking. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Is that a judgment? Yeah. Is that a judgment? Yeah. But what kind? A judicial one or a diagnostic one? How about in Revelation where it says, He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is wicked, let him be wicked still. A judicial finding or a diagnosis? These are judgments. These are the true judgments. God <clears throat> judges the actual condition. Now, understanding our natural condition, apart from God's grace, apart from the intercessions of Jesus Christ, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, our natural condition after Adam and Eve sinned is terminal. Our condition is terminal. We have no capacity to remedy this condition. That's our starting point. But because of God's grace, because of the actions of Jesus Christ, because of the workings of the Holy Spirit, a remedy is offered for free. And anybody can partake of the remedy. So diagnostically, in the end, God will be looking, did you partake of the remedy or did you reject the remedy? If you partake of the remedy, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new heart and right spirit. The heart is circumcised by the spirit. The law is written in the inner man. We get the mind of Christ. We're reborn. We're regenerated. We're recreated. We're new creatures in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Do you understand the legal mechanics of Christianity block and obstruct that? The legal mechanics are I have to get every sin I've ever done accounted for and stamped forgiven in heaven. And it's all about some mechanistic thing happening in a book somewhere. It's not happening in me anymore. So what determines our eternal destiny? God's judgment upon us are our judgment as to whether we can trust him and open our heart to him or not. It's our judgment of him. And so you'll find in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God, may you be proved right when you are judged. That's a quote. Check me out, Romans 3, verse 4. God being judged? How could that be? How could it be that God is the one being judged? Phillips translated, God, may you be proved right when you are uh, taken into court. Who's going to take God into court? How did that happen? If somebody tells lies about you that people believe, and thus they don't trust you anymore, maybe it's your own family, but they're all lies. There's no truth in it. And you love your own family, and you want that reconciled, reconciled relationship. You want trust restored. What will you have to do? If they believe lies about you, won't you have to reveal the truth and prove the lies wrong? So who's on trial? You are, but you've done nothing wrong. This is the conflict. God has done nothing wrong. He's always trustworthy, but Satan has lied about him. So this is what Jesus means in Matthew twelve thirty-three through 37. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. Tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the mouth, heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. What is he saying? By your condition. He just said the words are a reflection of the condition of the heart. And therefore, in the end, it's not about the deeds. It's about the condition of the heart. And you're either healed and restored or you're not. That's what will will acquit or condemn you, your condition. So out of the book, Great Controversy, page 543, it says, like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day, declare the verdict that the wicked are incurable. That's God's judgment, the verdict. Now, does the verdict that God makes the wicked are incurable does his verdict make them incurable or does his verdict simply confirm the condition that they're in do you understand under the judicial model his verdict makes it so God makes a ruling and his ruling makes it happen under the design law model God simply announces and pronounces the reality of what is in each heart reconciled to God and been healed or rejected and closed and terminal <clears throat> we don't need to fear God the point is you don't, under, the, under the imposed law model when you operate under that model it creates fear of God you don't need to fear God who's trying to save you you need to fear unremedied sin which is killing you and you know this metaphor I'll give this metaphor again because I think it's quite helpful to see the distinction I, I, a person, a an, an, an heroin addict is using dirty needles to shoot up and get high on IV heroin. Now, that person is breaking both types of laws. They're breaking the laws of health. Everybody see that? Laws of health are being broken. But they're also breaking imposed human laws because it's illegal to do that. You see, both types of laws are being broken. Now, does that person want to be taken before the magistrate, the judge, and have the prosecutor present the evidence of all their illegal behavior and have the judge make a judgment and pronounce sentence does does the person probably want to do that or not probably not and in fact under that model they will hire someone as an advocate to stand between them and the judge to to obfuscate to have evidence excluded to, to to you know what i'm saying to to prevent truth from being realized so they won't be sentenced under the design law model when they go into the doctor because they've been using dirty needles they've got an infection of the heart called endocarditis when they go into the doctor The doctor goes far beyond the magistrate. They hear the history of all the bad things the person's doing, but then the doctor gets an MRI, an ultrasound, and looks into the deep recesses of their being to find every defect he can find so that he can make a judgment. And he judges, which is called a diagnosis. And then he pronounces sentence, which is called a therapeutic treatment plan. Now, does the person probably want to go there? Yeah, he probably does. You see, when we come back to design law, then people begin to pray like David. Search me, oh God, and see the wicked. Find the wicked way in me, Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Fix what's broken. You can do it. You're my creator. I trust you. Fix it. But when we go under the imposed law model, which is where most of Christianity operates, we instead create theologies that functionally hide us from God. Oh, in this model, when we confess our sins, we're covered with the robe of righteousness. It covers us. When the father looks at us, he can't see us. He instead sees his son and he writes down the perfection of Jesus in our record. That's like over here with endocarditis. The doctor comes in to examine you. You shove your healthy brother in front of you and you say, examine him and whatever's right, put it in my record. See, it doesn't help a thing, but that's what many Christians teach. And that's why there's this paralysis in Christianity where people have a form of godliness, but there's no power, which was Paul talks about. <clears throat> so, what then is recorded in the record books of heaven? There are record books in heaven, I, uh, absolutely. I doubt seriously, though, they're paper or parchment or animal skins. That language, record books in heaven, is a construct, an idea to communicate that there's some type of historical and other recording apparatus in heaven. It's probably not magnetic hard drives either. Everybody agree with me on that? Okay. And I, there's at least three different types of records in heaven. At least three different types. There's a system of recording that actually records and stores the unique individuality and identity of every person who's ever lived. You remember, well, if you understand the nature of, of humankind, the Bible tells us that we are tripartite, body, soul, and spirit. Body, soma would be analogous to a computer's hardware, the machine. Soul, Suke or psyche, from where we get psychiatry and psychology, it would be analogous to a computer's software. Your unique individuality, your identity, your soul. And spirit, panuma, from where we get pneumonia, which means breath of life or energy. And for a computer to be operational, you have to have body, you have to have hardware, you have to have software, and you have to have energy. Two out of those three doesn't work. For a human being to be operational, you have to have a body, you have to have a soul, an identity, an individuality, and you have to have the breath of life. And so the Bible teaches that what we call death, think about what happens when your computer runs out of power. No more power. It goes into what state? What does the Bible say to humans when they run out of power? They go into what state? Sleep Now, if you have your hardware, your machine, if you have your computer backed up on the cloud, get your mind around that metaphor, (laughs) okay? And somebody destroys your machine. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. So somebody's got your computer and they're threatening to destroy it, but you have all the data backed up on a cloud. They can destroy the machine. Just go to a new one, download. What have you just done? Resurrected your computer. And so Paul says in Thessalonians that when the Lord returns, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep and the dead in Christ will rise first. In one passage, we have the dead coming down from heaven and the dead coming up out of the ground in one passage. Why? How? Because their individualities, their identities, the software, their unique personhood are stored on the heavenly servers and safe and secure with Christ. Their bodies, though, get new, perfect, sinless bodies without any genetic defects at the second coming, and they're downloaded, in the breath of life they live again. Resurrection. It's wonderful. Okay? So there's one type of recording apparatus in heaven where the identities and individualities of all human beings are safe and secure with Christ in heaven. But I believe there's at least two more other types of recording apparatus in heaven. One, the Bible talks about the book sealed with the seven seals. The book sealed with the seven seals. Now, my personal view on this, and this is my personal view. I can't give you hard proof at this point in human history, so you're free to disagree. But my view is that that book sealed with seven seals is before God began to create God, in his foreknowledge, recorded the history of the universe, including the rebellion of Lucifer, the fall of the third of the angels, the rebellion of humankind, that Jesus would come and what he would achieve and who was saved and who was lost in the life of every... It's all recorded with his foreknowledge. He records it all. And then when he begins creating intelligent beings, and he seals it with seven seals. It's all sealed up. Nobody gets to peek until the end of time. And then he sends his recording angels around to record and actually record... History as it unfolds. What actually happens when people make free will choices? And in the end of time, the historical record recorded by the recording angels will be compared with God's foreknowledge, and you're going to see an exact match. That God did not use his foreknowledge to manipulate or control. That even though he has foreknowledge, we still have complete freedom. And it would be those records that will also demonstrate those not, not the records of our identities, but the records of those histories will also demonstrate that all who are lost are only lost because they rejected everything God offered to heal them. And there was nothing more God could do for them. He did everything possible, multiple times for every person. And in the end, he grants them their free choice to be separate from him, the source of life. So in the uh, Sabbath lesson, we're now into the uh, last paragraph. <laughs> It says, so with this in mind, uh, what is your response to the last paragraph of the lesson which states, God will judge our actions in the last judgment. After everything we went through, what's your response? God will judge our actions in the last judgment. Is it our actions that are being judged or the quality and character of our hearts? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the... Heart, make a tree good and his fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and his fruit will be bad. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Is sin a problem of deeds, actions, or a problem of the heart that can be manifested in the actions? I'm going to get you some trick questions. You ready for these? You know you love these. Can a person do an act which appears good but is actually evil? Can a person do an act which appears evil, but is actually good? Yes. Let's give some examples. Could could the act, could the act, this is a could, could the act of standing up in the church sanctuary, turning over the communion table, taking out your belt and cracking it, accusing the pastors and elders of defaming God's house, be either an act of evil or an act of righteousness, depending on who's doing it, why, and the motive of the heart? Yes. It could be either one. Can you tell? Can you tell by the act alone? But we're going to be judged by our acts. The lesson says, I'm going to disabuse you of that. You cannot tell by the act alone. Can one person see somebody turning over the money tables and pulling out a whip and cracking it and see evil being done there, defaming God's house? Can another person see cleansing and righteousness being done there? Is it the act that determines that? It is not. How about this one? What about a husband whose wife has a massive stroke and is so-called brain dead and he pulls the plug on her and lets her die? Could that be an act of love in which he fulfills a promise he made to her to never let her live in a vegetative state? Or could it be that he's had a girlfriend for several years and he can't get her uh, the estate and can't marry her until the wife dies? Can you tell by the act alone? You see, the problem with this What do we want to call it? Oh, uh, Hebrews. You ought to be on meat, but you're still on milk. You're infants. This childish thinking, which is not acquainted with righteousness. This way of thinking about focusing on acts and deeds, and that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 and 6 says, that the elementary stuff is repentance from acts that lead to death. And that approach... Hebrews writer says is not acquainted with righteousness they haven't been set right and what's setting right cleansing the sanctuary or setting it right is justification putting our hearts minds right with God again this legal thing is an obstruction Sunday's lesson talks about salvation what do you understand the word salvation to mean If a non-Christian was sitting next to you on an airplane, you've got two hours, you're flying from one city to the next, and they said to you, hey, you know, tell me, what does salvation mean? What do you tell them? Healing. Healing. I love this. Wonderful. Because there's a good text in Acts, chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. We have two power words here, salvation and saved. What do these words mean? Do you know they're often taught mechanistically and legalistically? So let me ask you this. Uh, if you look up in the lexicon, the, the Greek words that are translated there, um, the one salvation is uh, um, soteria. It's the Greek word translated salvation. And it means basically to deliver from injury, from harm, from enslavement, from anything that is destructive to you. It means to deliver from anything that's destroying you. Mm -hmm. That's what salvation means. So, from what do we need deliverance? Do we need deliverance from, watch the questions, from God? (laughs) Do we need deliverance from God's judgment? Do we need deliverance from God's just punishment? Do you understand most of Christianity teaches that's what we're being delivered from? Jesus took our punishment so that God doesn't have to punish us. And so we'll be delivered from the punishment of God. It's not what we need deliverance from. How about do we need deliverance from our sinful condition? Yes. Our false beliefs, our insecurities, our fears, our bad habits, the selfishness that resides inside us. This is what we need deliverance from. Our fallen terminal state. So if that's what we need deliverance from, then what would Jesus need to do to provide us deliverance from that? Would he need to pay a legal penalty to his father to deliver us from our condition? That doesn't work, does it? This is, again, why there's a form of godliness, but no power. Because people are claiming something, it would be like you're dying of terminal cancer, and you go and claim legal pardon for it. How does being pardoned by the magistrate for terminal cancer help you? It doesn't. What we need is a new heart and right spirit. This, this, this imperialistic legal construct is the little horn power warring against the saints. It's the man of sin setting himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. It's what the temple, your mind, heart and character is to be cleansed from so you can come back into at one minute unity with God. And might I suggest that the sanctuary in the Old Testament also represents that? That's exactly what it represents. It's the whole process. We'll see if we can get to some more. That's a great point. Um, the word saved, by the way, the Greek word is sozo, and it also means to heal. And you guys get this. If you've been bit by a rattlesnake or, or, or got hit in a car wreck, and so you've got broken bones or whatever, and they take you to the emergency room in either condition, do you say to the doctor, please save me, doctor, please save me? And the doctor goes, I forgive you. <laughs> is that what you want is it forgiveness no why do you then see in the, old, in, in, in the New Testament Jesus saying to the paralytic your sins are forgiven you and then pick up your bed and walk Because in their legal mindset, they were taught that their infirmities were proof that they were sinners. And so not only did they have the sickness to deal with, they had this terrible guilt upon them that they were out with God and they were terrible sinners and they were beyond God's grace and mercy. The lepers were completely outcast from society, condemned by church, and so they needed more than physical healing. They needed spiritual healing, and so they needed him to speak the words, You're forgiven. I'm not against you. Same thing to the woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn you. They needed to hear that because they believed they were beyond salvation. They were so horrible that God couldn't love them anymore. So what did they need? The truth about God's grace, about his character. They need to come to an acknowledgement that their problem wasn't that they were so awful God couldn't love, but their concept of God was so awful it barred them from knowing him. So I'm going to read you another hard one. We'll finish on this. We won't get out of this. There's really good stuff in the lesson. But I have to do this because a lot of uh, my friends in the Seventh-day Adventist Church are stuck on passages like this. And you will go out of here and you want to share this with one of your friends, uh, what we've talked about today, and somebody will read this to you. And you'll go, this is out of a book called Great Controversy, page 420. Important truths concerning the atonement are taught by the typical service. A substitute was accepted in the sinner's stead, but the sin was not canceled by the blood of the victim. A means was thus provided by which it was transferred to the sanctuary. By the offering of blood, the sinner acknowledged that the authority of the law, uh, acknowledged the authority of the law, confessed his guilt in transgression and expressed his desire for pardon through faith in the Redeemer to come. But he was not yet entirely released from the condemnation of the law. On the day of the atonement, the high priest, having taken an offering from the congregation, went to the most holy place with the blood of this offering and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat directly over the law to make satisfaction for its claims. Then, in his character as mediator, he took the sins upon himself, bore them from the sanctuary, placing his hands upon the head of the scapegoat. He confessed them over over him, all these sins, thus in figure, transferring them from himself to the goat. The goat then bore them away, and they were regarded as forever separated from the people. You know you're going to get hit with that by somebody that holds that legal model, aren't you? How do you answer it? Do you have an answer? Can you say, can you explain what that actually means in reality? First off, understand that is metaphor, symbolism, parable, object lesson. And metaphor is only metaphor if it points to some reality, directly points. If there's no reality to which the metaphor is connected, it is no longer a metaphor. It's fantasy. Many of the theologians who hold this legal model refuse reality. They stay in the metaphor. So what's the reality? What's the reality of the sin problem? When Adam and Eve sinned, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? Did the nature and character of humankind get changed? So however you explain the plan of salvation, it was not to do something to God and it wasn't to do something to his law. They've never changed the problem, the defect, the deviation is in the condition of humankind. So the plan of salvation is to fix what's going on in humankind. Thus, as uh, Linda said a moment ago, the Old Testament sanctuary rightly understood is a metaphor for God restoring and healing humankind back to his original ideal. You can see this in the Old Testament. Where do they keep the law? inside the ark in the most holy place in the new covenant recorded both in jeremiah and hebrews it says i will write my law where in your hearts and minds in the old covenant they took blood as it was just described here into the system on various times and places but they would put blood inside the system in various times and places where did jesus say in the new testament john chapter six the blood was to be placed Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Was he talking cannibalism? This is metaphor still. Okay? It's not literal red corpuscles. You all get that, right? In the song, there's power in the blood, there's power in the blood. No, there's power in the one who shed his blood. That's where the power is. It's not in the red corpuscles. That, that, that uh, teaches that, that teaching out of the Dark Ages where if you get a little piece of a shroud that has a little blood on it, you've got something magical. That's not right. There's power in the one who shed his blood. You all with me? So what do you understand to be happening? This is a metaphor for internalization. Blood is a, is a symbolism. Oh, by the way, the, the metaphor of blood and flesh got transferred in the New Testament church into another metaphor. They just substituted symbols for new symbols. Bread and wine. Bread is flesh. Wine is blood. But there's still symbols. There's nothing magical in the flour and yeast. And not, no yeast. It was yeast free. A flour and the sugar or whatever it was that pardon? And, and water that made up the, the wafers. There was nothing magical in that. There's nothing magical in the wine. It was symbolic of something. What's it symbolic of? Well, what? When you partake of a piece of food, it's just to teach you something. When you take food into your body, what happens to that food? Literally, what happens? The molecules of that food get broken down and become building blocks to give you energy and sustenance and actually become part of your physical being. So, this is symbolic of the word of God. The word was made flesh unless you eat my flesh unless you eat my word and so as the building blocks of the molecules of of the proteins and carbohydrates become part of your body the truth that god revealed as you ingest and devour it into your mind and heart become the building blocks of the ideas the beliefs the constructs the worldview ultimately of your character it helps reshape you in your software if you will your way of thinking This is the word of God that we take in, which leads dispels the lies and leads us to trust. And as we trust God, we open the heart. And it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. And this is the blood. The blood is symbolic of the Life. life. And thus we receive through the Holy Spirit a new heart and right spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get new motives, new desires. This is partaking of the blood. Okay? It's an actual... But it's symbolic. You have to understand that to understand passages like this. So I'm going to try to go through this very quickly. And, 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 and if you want the notes, I've kind of unpacked and put in red what this means. But important truths concerning the atonement were taught by the typical service. A substitute was accepted in the sinner's stead. Accepted for what purpose? Accepted for the purpose of God to inflict punishment upon? Or accepted for the purpose of curing the condition that we couldn't cure? He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The purpose of the substitution was for our healing and restoration, not for exhausting God's anger and wrath and making legal payments. But the sin was not canceled by the blood of the victim. Well, this is Old Testament. The blood of the victim at this point in time is an animal. Was there ever a time in human history that animal sacrifices resolved the sin problem? Hebrews makes it clear. If you read Hebrews 8 and 10, it says that the sacrifice of animals were not sufficient to to do what? Cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. What's cleanse the conscience mean? New heart and right spirit. An animal sacrifice couldn't do anything to transform the internal person. Christ had to come and achieve perfection of humanity that, that that he offers us and the spirit takes and reproduces in us. A means was thus provided by which it could be transferred to the sanctuary. What sanctuary is being transferred to? Is this talking about deeds being transferred, records being transferred, which is often taught in the legal model? Or is it talking about Christ, our substitute, again, who knew no sin, becoming human and taking the sinful condition so that he could overcome and cure it? The offering of blood the sinner acknowledged by the offering of blood the sinner acknowledged the authority of the law confessed his guilt and transgression and expressed his desire for pardon through faith in the redeemer to come again the blood symbolizes what life and whose life it's the life of Jesus which cleanses and heals and also acknowledges the authority of the law what kind of law design you remember what the blood does in the animal what does the blood do it circulates Remember the law of love is the principle of giving symbolically represented by the circle. And so in God's government in Ezekiel chapter 10, the throne sits on a moving wheel inside a moving circle inside a rotating wheel. And all living beings, if you're alive, you have to participate in this law. You have to give away carbon dioxide to the plants and have to get oxygen back from them, a never-ending circle of giving. You take water in and you give water out. You take energy in and you give energy out. It is a constant circle of giving how life, these are the laws upon which God created reality the law of love symbolic in the blood we acknowledge this is god's law but he was not yet entirely released from the from the condemnation why old testament this is symbolic he hasn't been fully renewed he still has a he has still fallen condition he hasn't been glorified yet he hasn't been fully healed on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, now this is the Day of Atonement, in a yearly cycle, which is a, which is a theater, which is a drama, which is acting out a grand reality. And the grand reality is when? When is the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement, the day people are restored to rightness, and Christ comes and gets them. That's what this is pointing to. And it says... Um, on the day of atonement, the high priest having taken an offering from the congregation went to the most holy place with the blood of his offering and sprinkled upon the mercy seat directly over the law to make satisfaction for its claims. i want want to tell you what that language means. Satisfaction for its claims. What does the law claim? Perfect life. Perfection. Perfect life, how life is designed to operate. What law lends you... If your child is dying of leukemia, what does the laws of health claim? In other words... What does the laws of health require in order for your child to live? There's a requirement of the laws of health. If your child's got leukemia, for your child to live, what has to happen? The leukemia has to go into and remission the leukemic or cancerous cells have to remit back to their non-cancerous healthy state without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin without Christ's achievement or condition of defect or selfishness and fear the lack of love in our hearts we could not remit back to God's original design this is what the Bible is teaching and what is the only thing that will satisfy the laws of health? remission of the cancer what is the only thing that will satisfy you as a parent? are you satisfied with anything less than remission? This is why God was only satisfied with what Christ did. You get that satisfaction language because only what Christ did would actually fix what was necessary so that we could have salvation. This is the only thing satisfying. But it's taught through the imposed law model that it satisfied his wrath, it satisfied his anger, it satisfied the just punishment. That's all corruption. And then in his character of mediator, he took the sins upon himself and bore them from the sanctuary. Mediator. Intercessor, standing in between. What's he doing? The high priest represents Jesus. And what is Jesus working to do? Where is Jesus working? Inside our hearts. That's right. That's right. So he's removing sinfulness, fear, distortion. He's working inside our hearts to free us from guilt, to free us from shame and to free us from the lies and putting hands on the scapegoat this is symbolic of what will happen at the end of time for all those who live deceived by Satan believing lies about God believing they were too beyond healing they were, they were no good and God would never have them but the truth has set them free they see the truth of who God is they see that God loves them they see that they're worthy in his love of being restored and they've accepted that then what happens to all the lies where do the lies go? Who gets held accountable for all those lies? He's the originator of them. They are not transferred in some mechanistic legal way. They're transferred. The responsibility for evil and sin is taken off the shoulders of God, which most people have held him accountable for, and put on the shoulders of the evil one, and people see him for who he is, the source of corruption and evil and rebellion. And, and Isaiah chapter 14 describes this process. He's taken out of the camp and let it go. yes. I wish I had more time to go on to the other sacrifices and things and a lot more fun in the lesson, but the notes are not going to be online. <clears throat> Gracious heavenly father, we thank you so much that you are our creator who built the universe to run in harmony with your perfection of love. Truly the world has been in darkness and misconceptions about you have been raining, but you foresaw it all. And you told us that at the end of time, there, enough truth would be recovered that judgment discernment will be imparted to your saints we ask for your holy spirit to enlighten our minds with wisdom with discernment with judgment that we can know you for who you truly are and reject these distortions and experience your recreative power within that we will be renewed to reveal you we pray in your holy name amen